Grant has um, a word or two to finish this off, and Grant might ask you to kind of go through, well, if you'd <laughs> like the whole kind of golden chain to kind of take us to where you're at um, there if you give us a, a little review, but um, certainly at a place here where, uh, talking to Carter a little bit ago, you, you feel like this is just way too lofty to even get your mind around or to me it is it's just it's just the news is so good and uh, I, I think sinfully I'm prone to exaggeration but I don't think I feel like we're exaggerating um, in my own mind verse 32 where we want to end up today as uh, early on verse 8:28. Early, early on, when I was probably 12 to 17, I think Joshua 1.8 was my favorite. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but meditate on it day and night, and observe to do according to all that's written there, and then it'll make your way prosperous. And I think early on, that verse gripped me more than anything. When I was baptized, I, I used that verse as the one that most impacted me. And then Romans 8.28, after I broke my neck, I think kind of took over. I was more familiar with that one. And then for a while, 2 Corinthians 4, 17, and 18, that are like momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So we should fix our eyes on what's seen, but what's unseen, but what's seen summary, what's unseen is eternal. Um, I think there for a, a decade or so, that might have been the most impacting one. And I think for the last maybe 15 years, verse 32, it's just been, if I could take one verse to wherever someone shipped me off to and uh, and enjoy it. I just think this verse, because of the logic, and uh, I can't get enough of it. So um, I, I feel like these guys are the same way. Well, I don't know if that's as far as an all-time favorite, but as far as just being able to uh, explain it. So um, Grant's going to go back with us and uh, help us um, finish the golden chain. Um, and... Uh, but Carter, would you read, just to get us going, could you maybe start us all the way in 26, just kind of in the context and get all the way to 32 there, those seven verses? Mm -hmm. Romans eight twenty-six through 32. Yes, sir. <clears throat> Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that th for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Good deal. Scott, you pray for us? Sure. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we what a privilege it is to study this chapter, as we've said uh, pretty much every week for the last several weeks. What an amazing chapter. We're thankful that it's in the Bible. We're thankful that we've been able to just chew on it slowly, week by week, and we come to sort of this these incredible verses today. I feel like we say that almost every week, but these are really... Incredible verses, Father, help us to, to see the, the magnitude, especially of verse 32, that you didn't spare your own son. I mean, how incredible that is. Help us to walk away today with 
maybe greater assurance of your love for us, uh, greater stability, greater hope uh, in light of the glory to come as well. And uh, help us to be faithful as, as we teach this magnificent text of Scripture. And may we be strengthened uh, through this passage of Scripture. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks. Assure, uh, assurance of his love, hope, and security, Scott. That is uh, exactly what, what this is. And uh, grant the guarantee of us being glorified. Grant, here's a quote from Grant uh, about an hour and a half ago, that this is taken over for propitiation as Grant's favorite. I didn't ever think I'd hear it, Grant. But uh, I like I want to hear it. If this takes over for propitiation, then I want to hear uh, what Scott you wrote, revved up about this. Yeah, I think um, I just didn't realize how important glorification was uh, in Paul's mind when he's writing scripture, but it's found all over, and I was kind of going through all that this morning, but... You said you wanted me to kind of go back through the golden chain. But yeah, it's probably if you would. Good to review uh, the other links before glorification, so um, we know, um, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So last time we saw that the golden chain was, uh, if we're a Christian, that God foreknew us. He then um, predestined us. He called us. He justified us. And then we will be glorified. And we'll see that uh, glorified is in the past tense, which is interesting. So we'll, we'll come back to that. But we know that... Foreknowledge, God foreknew us. He, he set his affectionate love on us in eternity past, selecting us as his people, his sons and daughters. <coughs> then he predestined us. He determined our end from the beginning, uh, our end being glorification, being with him, uh, finally glorified just like as him, uh, as Christ. And then he called us, so overcoming, remember that was the effectual call, not the general call, he so overcomes our rebellion by his grace that we uh, freely and lovingly choose him. And then he justifies us when we've, Josh discussed that in detail last time, and that's been the topic of uh, discussion throughout Romans, that he um, counts us as righteous in Christ, not of our own righteousness, but the righteousness that is credited to us from Christ and all of our sin being put on Christ, absorbed on the cross. We are now... Uh, considered blameless in Christ before him in the throne room of God, justified. And then the last one would be uh, glorified. And so glorification, we, we kind of already talked about glorification back in verses 23 and 24 of Romans 8. But I, I remember when I was a little kid growing up sort of in Southern, Southern Baptist culture, uh, I thought glory was a place because, you know, everyone would talk about so-and-so has gone on to glory or uh, we're ready to make it to glory, and there was a church called Glory. And so I just thought, oh, that's another name for heaven. That's a place that we get to. Um, but I think that's not quite what it's getting at. We will be glorified. Uh, and, I, and I do believe it has, it has surpassed propitiation for me, and it just gets my heart rate going much higher every time I start reading about this stuff, the, the where we will be in the future. Um, I think that's so important because it's important to know the goal. Paul grounds this as the hope of believers in verse 23 and 24. I'll go back and read that in a second. But um, 
I remember in grad school that a lot of times you can get so caught up in the research that you sort of forget why you're doing it. And I would have these meetings every once in a while with my boss that would sort of reorient me to what's the goal? Why am I doing what I'm doing? Because I would just be in the weeds doing the daily stuff and it's like, wait, what am I even doing? None of this is working. Uh, why am I here? <laughs> Should I quit? All that good stuff. And um, we would have these meetings and he would sort of reorient me to this is why you're doing this. This is what it's leading to. This is the outcome. This is what we're hoping to achieve. And that would sort of re-stir in me this creativity, this desire to do the research. Like, oh, yeah, that's why I'm doing it. That's why I'm doing it. And so I think this is the case with glorification. It's telling us the goal of the Christian life, the, where we're going to be finally. Where do we wind up? You know, we're in the, we've been justified. We're in the sanctification. We're putting to, to death the deeds of the body. We have not yet been glorified. But I think it's important to keep that on the forefront to see we will be glorified. One day we will no longer struggle with sin or temptation. We will be made uh, perfect in that sense, and we will be like Christ, and we will see him as he is. We'll stand before him. We'll see him face to face. We will have no more temptation. Our bodies will be made uh, a spiritual body. And so I just wanted to kind of go through that again, and I didn't realize how much Paul grounded glorification as the hope of the believer. Uh, He has said that several times, actually, in, in Corinthians and Romans, But I wanted to go back in verse, uh, I think it's in 23 and 24, where he says, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. So the hope of the believer is grounded in the fact that we will have resurrected bodies. We will be made new. We will be glorified. Um, and in other places, this is an emphasis for Paul. I'm just going to read through uh, several places where this stands out. Um, he says, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are, we are of all people most to be pitied, meaning we have a hope in another life, glorification to come. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That just to me sounds like all of Romans so far, Romans 3, Romans 5, and now with this glorification, the resurrection from the dead. And then he continues, that's Philippians 3, but he continues in 1 Corinthians uh, 15, which that's a great chapter if you're interested in knowing more about what what will the uh, glorified body look like. You know, 1 Corinthians 15 is a great place to go, but he starts in 42. So it is with the resurrection of the dead... What is sown is perishable, what is raised is imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power, it is sown a natural body, it is raised a spiritual body. And we discussed that last time with um, a spiritual body. A lot of times we can think spiritual means somehow less than physical, more ghostly. That was the quote I was reading that uh, the things here will seem more ghostly in comparison to the spiritual body, the glorified body will think, how could that fish have sustained, how could that ghostly fish sustain the glorified Christ when he ate in front of the disciples? So uh, spiritual is not less, it's actually more, it's more full, it's more beautiful. And I, I, I 
sort of get at this. Boyce said this that I was shocked when he said it. He said a lot of times for or for glorification, it's better to go to the poets and the authors than it is the theologians. And I was just like, wait, hold on a minute. That's kind of strange. But he's saying basically it's almost a mysterious thing that we're getting at. And I think C.S. Lewis, he hits on the idea of glory to come so many times in his, in his books, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, uh, The Weight of Glory, all these things. But I just this one scene from the silver chair was so interesting to me. And I don't know the whole context of what this land represents, but there's a land called Bism that's underneath Narnia. And it was open before uh, Prince or King Rillian, and they were deciding whether to go there or not or to go back up to the surface. And it's a land of fire with salamanders in the fire and these little gnome creatures. And one of the gnomes says, uh, he's asking them to come down, down to Bism with them. And I don't know what that represents, but this kind of gets at, uh, into me where I think this can kind of help fix our minds on the beauty of the glory to come. He says, down there I could show you real gold, real silver, real diamonds. I have heard of those little scratches in the crust that you top dwellers call mines, but that's where you get dead gold, dead silver, dead gems. Down in Bism, we have them alive and growing. There I'll pick you a bunch of rubies that you can eat and squeeze, a cup full of diamond juice. You won't care much about fingering the cold, dead treasures of your shallow mines after you have tasted the live ones of Bism. And that just sort of gets at it to me that we'll be in this uh, renewed earth. The the earth is, uh, it's glorification is tied in with our glorification. There'll be a purpose and things to do. And Paul continues, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. And he also continues for, what was being brought to an end came with glory. Much more will what is permanent have glory. Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Again, he's showing the hope that we have in the future glorification. And then in 2 Corinthians 3.18, the last one that I'm going to read, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. So we see this already and not yet. We're already being glorified, but we will be finally glorified one day with Christ. And so the last thing I want to do really quick, because I know I'm taking up too much time with glorification. We need to move on to what y'all have for today. But why the past tense? Why does he have, uh, he foreknew us. Uh, which was in the past, he predestined us in the past, he called us, if we're Christian, that's in the past, justification for us as Christians is a past event. But then he keeps glorification, which in my mind is a future event, he keeps that past tense, glorified. What does that mean? Uh, It could be the already and not yet aspect to glorification. We just saw that after we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. So justification one-time event, and then we immediately start sanctification. We're becoming more like Christ, but we're being conformed into his image from one degree of glory to another. That's the beginning of glorification, culminated finally with glorification uh, when sanctification, I guess you could say, sort of ends. Uh, We won't be made perfect in the sense that we're all-knowing, but we'll continue to grow in knowledge of Christ, but we will be free from the battle with sin. I think it certainly could be that. Um, but I was talking to Mark about this, and he pointed out to me this idea of um, the prophetic perfect tense. And uh, I don't know that I'm the guy that talked to about the tenses in Hebrew and Greek literature, but um, I get a little tense when we start talking about tenses. But uh, Tyler May can call in to help with this. But at first, you know, when I was reading the commentaries, they communicated this idea. They all basically agreed this idea of, Paul describing with such certainty a future event that he describes it in the past tense language. 
And when I read that, I was like, that just sounds made up. They don't understand it, and so they just made that up. But then I talked to Mark, and of course he educated me and enlightened me. And uh, I was like, okay, this is actually like a real thing. And it's all over the Old Testament and in the New Testament where prophetic events are talked about by the prophet in the past, uh, the past tense for a future event to come. And I was trying to find all these examples of it in the Old Testament with you know, how God describing Noah already in the ark when he's not yet in the ark. And I was trying to describe it to Haley on the drive from uh, Oglethorpe County into Athens and wasn't making any sense and was trying to wrap my head around it. And she was like, oh, yeah, like Isaiah 53. And I was like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, that's great. And then I went and looked later. I was like, it can't be in the past tense, can it? And I was looking. And, yes, the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 is described in the past tense. And we know that's speaking about Christ to come many, many years later. But all of that is described in the past tense. And I think that makes sense. Um, in some sense, you could say Christ was described as slain before the foundation of the world. Uh, the prophets are simply announcing what God has revealed will happen. It's natural to describe these revelations in the past tense. And I think Paul could be tapping into that there. Something so sure, it's so fixed, because God has promised it, he describes it as if it had already happened. And I think that's what's getting at with glorification. It's so sure, it's so sure that you can describe it as already have, hap have happened. Wow. I think that's pretty interesting. I like it. We need to uh, quote Haley more often. That's, that's yeah. good. Carter, what do you hear from you? But Scott, what do you have on, on that? Yeah. yeah, I mean, I just think, like, once you have, once you have one of these, you have all of them. Like, you, the golden chain. Like, once you have one, you have, you have them all. And you can't fall out. Uh, the point, one guy said the point in Romans 8.30 is to see that justification is not an isolated incident, but inextricably linked to the whole plan of God's purpose and activity beginning in eternity, coming into time and history, and ending again in eternity. Shriner said no one who is foreknown or predestined will drop out in the process, which, which is wonderful. Which I just could tell a quick story of a guy, uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones, one of the greatest preachers of the last century probably. He was going to become a doctor. Uh, there's a great documentary called Logic on Fire. If you've never seen it, it's worth watching. But he was going to be a doctor. He's a brilliant mind, and then God sort of called him to be a preacher. And so he takes this brilliant mind of his. To, so he preaches in just a unique way because he's got this. He, he dissects the, the issue, and he does it in a very – that's what makes him so powerful. So he, he, he becomes a preacher. He goes to a place in, in Wales called Sandfield, Aberavon, Wales, very poor area in Wales. He and his wife go there. He's very young, still in his 20, mid, late 20s maybe, maybe like Mark when Mark started North Ave. And he begins to preach. He begins to preach the gospel. He centered on the gospel. I think Christ and then crucified. That, that was his big theme. I think at the beginning of his ministry, he went back and preached it again at the end. But he, he was preaching powerfully, and he saw a genuine revival. And there was a guy named William Thomas who, who here's, here's the way that uh, Lloyd-Jones described him. He spent a lifetime in drunkenness, fighting, debauchery, hopelessness that for 77 years. He was 77 years old. He was getting drunk all the time. He was in a bar getting drunk this, this day, and he heard these conversations around him. He's drinking himself silly. And he hears this conversation about a preacher and about different things. He's picking up little bits and pieces here and there. And then somebody said, I was there last Sunday night, and that preacher said nobody was hopeless. He said there was hope for everybody. And, and the biographer just said, Ian Murray just said, that one sentence changed this man's life. He just thought, wow, if there's hope for everybody... There's hope for me. I'm going to go down there and listen to this guy, Lloyd-Jones, see what he has to say. And so he went the next Sunday, and he got there, but he just got too nervous. So he just said, I, I can't go in. So he turned away and went away. The next Sunday he came again. He started getting closer to the chapel. He hears music inside, and he, the music, I think, scared him off. He thought, I can't go in there with the music playing. He, he left again. So the third Sunday he's outside again. He's waiting outside. Somebody sees him and said, hey, Bill, why don't you come in and sit with me? I and mean, they're just this kindness, this act of kindness this guy did, sat beside him. And there he is, sitting there, listening to, to Lloyd-Jones preach the gospel. Lloyd-Jones said, William Thomas became a new man. 
He was washed. He was sanctified. He was justified. So here he is, 77 years. His face was scarred. He'd been so much fighting and everything. And here he is. And they said his face was glowing that night. And just a few years later, he would die. And Lloyd-Jones said, I had the great privilege of seeing him going from time to eternity, from time to glory, essentially, with the face of an angel shining. And then he held out his arms. Which I mentioned this in my sermon on Acts 7. He held out his arms, evidently, to the Lord of glory, who was waiting to receive him. I mean, that's just this the beauty of this passage. Here it takes a sinner like this, and he's justified, and he has the whole chain. So he can, in face of death, this man who lived a sinful life, he can expectantly know glory is to come right around the corner because once you have them all, you're, you're in this chain. So, I mean, what hope we should have in, in light of the gold chain? That's yeah. great. Yeah. So if you're in Christ, you are there. Someone, it may have been, um, Boyce said, this is the ultimate in long-range planning, right? Long-range from the past and long-range in the future, that, uh, that exact same number of people that were foreknown, were also predestined. And that same amount are going to be called. That exact same number. And that same number of the elect are then going to be predestined, are going to be um, called, are going to be justified. And then, once you're justified, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion. No one ever slips through the cracks on any of those. Carter? Nothing there. For 31, you got something for us? 31? Yeah, because um, read that, because we are now, uh, and, it, and it doesn't feel like it here, Grant, the, the mountain just keeps climbing. You know, it's just yeah. one extraordinary thing after another, and 31 is, is equally as unbelievable. That's how, sorry, don't mean to interrupt you, that's how Doriani explained it, was like we've been climbing the mountain all of Romans 8, and there's so many places we could stop, and there's beautiful views, uh, uh, yeah. but now we're at the top with 31 through 39, where you just sit and meditate yeah. and, and look at the view. Yeah, this, yeah, this is the peak. please enjoy the, the, the view, uh, if you will, because it's, it's glorious for sure. Yeah, on that note, um, Paul, I think it's really helpful, helpful to see that Paul seems to write verses 31 through 39, all the way through 39, in a, with a courtroom setting in mind. So, um, just 31, what then shall we say to these things, or what is there left to say? So, the we there, what shall we say? We refers to the believers, those who are found to rest their faith in, their faith in Christ. The, what shall they, we say to these things? These things refers to the truths taught specifically in 28, 29, 30. Those whom he called, he also predestined. Those whom he predestined, um, he justified. Those he justified, those are those he glorified. So what Paul is saying here is, what shall we say in light of the things that God has foreknown that us, has known us from all eternity past in the covenant of redemption? So the whole Godhead agrees on the plan to set out on a mission to rescue believers, to rescue a people for himself, a bride for himself. So God in eternity past has sealed the salvation of all those whom he has chosen. And going back to what you said, Mr. Mr. Scott, that none of, none of us can fall away. Those who are truly his, there are no cop-outs. There's no failed projects or anything. This what this passage, passage is all about is security, the security of the believer. And I think that really hits hard <clears throat> in 31 and 32. Yeah. That, um, Stott had, uh, and you, you might hopefully are you reading Stott, in 28 he had five convictions, in 29 and 30 he had five affirmations, and, uh, and then in 31 he starts with five questions. His first one uh, doesn't count yet. What shall we say in response to these things? And then he's going to go to these 
um, five unanswerable uh, questions. And I, I found it interesting. I hadn't known this, but 6-1, turn back a page in your Bible, if you would, 6-1, He had also said similar things to this. What should we say then? You see that in 6-1? So this is Paul's way of, okay, so, okay, now that we've meditated on this, remember he's building an argument. Now, what do, how do we conclude? What do we say? How, what should we, how should we go from here? And uh, so he's 6-1, he started like that. What should we say then? Uh, 6-15, what then? You know, okay, now that we have some new things to hold on to, 7-7, seven, seven, um, what should we say? So I love this. This is the way Paul goes about this. And, and uh, one of our students, when uh, she was teaching this a couple years ago, I love that. We always have to have three main points in their uh, one verse. And on her one verse in 831, her first uh, point was that if is not iffy here. And almost all the commentators say this. This could be better translated since. Since God is for us. So it's not meant to say, well, I wonder if really God's for me here. Oh, that's if. If God's for me, but maybe he is, maybe he isn't. That's not the idea at all. If God has foreknown, predestined, called, and justified you, he's really for you. He is really for you. And you go back to 27, the Holy Spirit, I like what Carter said in saying all of the Godhead. Remember in verse 27, the Holy Spirit is interceding for you in accordance to God's will. In 34, Jesus is interceding for you. We're coming to that in a week or two. And so Jesus is interceding for you. And now it's just this huge reminder, God is for you. God is for us. And it's not iffy. Scott? Can I just say one more thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I just, I think Lawson points out that God is for us. This is not in the past tense. It's in the present, present tense which means that right now God is for those who are in Christ. So it's not like we have to um, we have to hold out to the end in hopes of somehow getting into heaven, sort of muscling our way through life and gritting our teeth through the whole time and then finally arriving to the point to where we think that, oh, now finally God is for me. No, we're already there. If we're saved and if we believe and our trust is in Christ and He has redeemed us, He has justified us, no one can like revoke God's decree or declaration that we are justified. There is no higher court of appeals. Christ, God is the one who demands that we are justified, who declares that we're justified. No one can appeal to a higher court. There's no court like ultimately more supreme than God's uh, word. And so that's why it's so good. And those six questions that we're going to have in the next couple of weeks are going to just keep reiterating that. There, God has declared this. And so that's a done deal, Scott. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think uh, how comforting, again, this, this passage is. And it, just a quick story on this, this lady named Ruth Clark. I don't know hardly anything about her. This pastor referenced her. Apparently, she's, it's a book by a lady named Faith Cook. Wrote a bunch, she's written a bunch of biographies, and she wrote a book with a bunch of short biographies. People from Scotland, and this lady was from Scotland, and apparently she was a maid, or she, was a, she worked in a house for, for a couple. It was a Christian couple, and she was converted working for this family, and she served them faithfully for years as a Christian. Then there was some kind of accident I think it was 1800s, a horse and buggy or something. So she was severely injured. She's on her deathbed, this lady, Ruth Clark. And somebody came to her and asked her, they said, do you have any doubts about your hope in Christ? And this is, this is her two-sentence response, which was so good. Oh, no, no doubts. 
He who has loved me all my life through will not forsake me now. I mean, she's living in light of Romans 8. I mean, she, it's, it's certain, like God's love, there's no doubts at all. But just thinking in 31, like, uh, I'll read it again. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? One guy said the obvious answer to who can be against us is none, no one whatsoever. Sproul said all the human opposition that, are, that rises against us is meaningless in the final analysis because all the opposition in the world cannot overthrow the glory that God has laid up for his saints from the foundation of the world. Or nobody and no thing can ultimately harm or stand in the way of the one whom God is for, but we are going to face opposition. Like There's going to be opposition. I thought about John and Betty Stam. They faced opposition. They had their heads cut off in China, and yet that couldn't keep them away from the glory. That actually hastened them to glory. So, I mean, God is on our side. I mean, what again, what strength, what courage, what stability uh, Romans 8.31 should give us in our life. Yeah, and the idea is no one can successfully be against That's us, right? right? That's right. There is, there, there, there's a lot of things that are against us. Mm-hmm. Mosquitoes. <laughs> The dentist, you know, you got some things where you could say, wait a second, could be your mother-in-law, my mother-in-law is pretty neat, could be that, be, there's a lot of things where you feel like, hey, wait a second here, I've got all of these things against me, but the idea is no one can successfully be against you. God, way trumps all of that. Grant, any thoughts on 31 there? I don't think so. Okay, if God's for us, which really is since God is for us, um, who can be against it? Um, do you have Zach going back to your Bible study? Was there some, and I'm putting you on the, on the spot there a little bit, but do you remember some of that conversation that you guys have? There's, is there a nugget or two? Yeah, for 31. Yeah, I would love to hear. Not much added. Um, Okay. 32? Th- yeah, oh, well, let's start then, because this is something. <laughs> would you start us, or yeah. would you rather chip in? Yeah, I, um, I think that in 32, we see Christ set as the object of justification. Yeah. And it's such good evidence that, you know, Paul leads with this, what then shall we say? Um, kind of going back to 31, he's so, like, he puts forth the greatest evidence. If he didn't spare his own son, how will he also not work all things for our good? Um, yes. So that, that that's the, the evidence. I love that. A demonstration. Remember 5.8? God demonstrated his love for us in this. What was the demonstration? The demonstration was to send his son. Not to send his son, but to kill his son. And that's just the, when you think about the, how amazing it is. And, and um, I don't remember which commentator talking about the love. I, and this really got me. Because I feel like I love my son. I, I feel like, man, I love that guy. You know, and um, in that love, and I know you guys, Caroline, Michael, Carter, someday, there's going to be this idea where parents and it's a sinful dad loving a sinful son. Like with an enormous love that I can't even, never experienced until we had been. And, uh, and it wasn't two seconds in, was it? I mean, you get this, it doesn't take long. And, and, he, and he say, but wait a second here. That is nothing even comparable with God's love for his son. Think about eternity past. They're both perfect. So there isn't any sin to um, uh, taint that love. From eternity past, God has loved his son 
so perfectly. And for, you know, so you can't even think about the number of years. And then two, because of his great love for us, and to receive glory for himself, he sends Jesus to live and to get absolutely ridiculed, spit upon, all of those things that Jesus goes through. And then God, like uh, Haley reminds us in Isaiah 53, God kills his son. There is a great quote that, uh, Grant, you were talking about that quote. Could you read that? for us because sometimes I think this first part and then Scott I definitely want to hear your thoughts on the um, uh, because this is the gospel that first part he did not spare his son oh and he might be thinking of and I think there's a good chance of this Paul might be thinking back to Isaiah that um, with um, Isaac I mean Abraham sacrificing Isaac God did spare Isaac didn't he do you remember that? Abraham's ready to kill his son, and God spared Isaac by uh, a substitute with the ram. But God did not spare Jesus. Jesus is the substitute for us. Uh, that The quote's really good, that it was God who truly killed Jesus. Yeah, it's Dori, Doriani quoting. Scott, do you have the man's name? That Octavius Winslow was the okay. guy. Yeah. I had never heard of him, but it was so good. Um, talking about the fact that he who did not spare his own son but gave him up or handed him over, talking about that, it's Doriani quoting, says, ultimately it was not Judas for the money, not Pilate for fear, not Jews for envy, envy, but the Father for love, which was extremely powerful. It's the idea that um, God is the one who initiated handing Christ over. It's uh, Acts 2 with Stephen um, where he says uh, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men it was not like God sent his son into the world and then waited to see what would happen what would we do with God in flesh oh they, they're going to kill him he's not reacting to him he, he's handing Christ over for our benefit for our justification for crucifixion and Christ willingly submits it goes back to the idea of propitiation it's not Christ just jumping in front and appeasing uh, God and he's like okay fine I'll just kill you instead it's him willingly submitting to God the Father's plan of handing him over for our justification for his crucifixion and God pouring out God the Father pouring out his wrath on Christ and Christ willingly uh, taking that in our place. That's what's communicated with the idea of handing him over, giving him up. Yeah, so the Isaiah 53, 10, God crushed his son. God, and so that's what I think, as I think about it, um, with, that I wouldn't kill my son, I wouldn't hurt my son for any reason. God did that after an eternity past of perfect love for his son. Scott, that's the gospel. Oh, yeah. Right? I mean, this first part, he did not spare his own son. Yeah, it doesn't get much better than this. I mean, this is the heart of the God. I mean, if you don't get moved by this, it's like, oh, man, this is so so wonderful. Sproul just said, how can we not understand the posture of God toward his people after he has gone to such lengths to affect our redemptions? God spared nothing, not even his son, so that we might be saved. 
Uh, and then Lloyd-Jones said, God so loved the world that he gave a great philosopher, question mark, a great politician. No, he gave his only begotten son, Jesus of Nazareth, the Lord of glory. And then he, he said, uh, he, God did not withhold any part of the punishment from him. Like, oh, it's my son, I'm going to treat him lightly. No, he poured all his wrath upon him, everything that it deserved. God kept nothing back, and the son submitted himself to it willingly. And I, I, I've told this story before, but so some of you have heard it. But I, I'll just tell the story that Sproul tells on his talk on Abraham and Isaac, the sacrifice of faith. There's actually a video of it. I had never seen the video of it, but i got to tell this story. Uh, Sproul, when they started Ligonier Ministries, they started in Pennsylvania, Ligonier Valley, and there was a lady named Mrs. Hillman. She was a widower. Her husband had made a lot of money, and so she was giving money to help start Ligonier Ministries. I think she gave land and a lot of money. And so they're finally moving in there to the Ligonier uh, Valley to start Ligonier Ministries. And she gave them this gift of these two uh, purebred German Shepherd puppies. Uh, one was descended from this uh, the, the great, I don't know, it, it won like this huge award. And so this is the grandson was, was, one, was the boy and then the female. So they were born on Palm Sunday. So it's uh, Hosanna and Hallelujah were already, they were already named. So Hosanna was the male and uh, Hallelujah was the female. And so then Sproul said he, he's walking around his house yelling out Hosanna and Hallelujah all the time. He said, my neighbors are going to think this charismatic guy has moved in next door. But he said he, he couldn't choose the name. And so he said a few months later, he was in the kitchen. They had installed a doggy door in their, in their kitchen. And the male dog, Hosanna, came rushing in. And I'm sure he was whimpering. And his face, he said, was grotesque. It was huge. He said it was two or three times bigger than normal. And he said, oh, no, he's got his head stuck in a hornet's nest. He's been stung hundreds of times. We've got to rush him to the vet. So they put him in the car. They raced over to the vet. And the vet, upon closer examination, found three fang marks in his face. And so either he got with multiple snakes got him, or one venomous snake bit him three times. And the vet said it was the worst uh, venom bite that he'd ever seen in an animal. And he said he didn't think he was going to live, but he said, well, we'll do the best we can. So then 24 hours later, he called and said he's, he survived the worst part of it. He survived the 24 hours, but he, the swelling is so bad that his eyes are swollen shut. This dog's eye, he cannot see. He said oftentimes when that happens, the animal will lose its will to live. But he said, We're, I'm, I'm talking to the animal, I'm trying to keep him, you know, there. And so then two or three days later, he called again and said, okay, he has made it through the worst of it. He looks like he's going to live, going to survive, and it's going to be a long recovery process. So then 10, 10 days or two weeks later, he called and said, okay, he's ready to be picked up. But he said, he said, R.C., you, you need to be ready to what you're going to see. I mean, all of the, the skin is, is off his face. You can see the navel cavities. Like, just be prepared. It's going to be shocking when you see it. And Sproul said nothing could have prepared him to see this dog. He's, he said he was shocked. He's like, why did you put this thing out of its misery? He's like, he just, like, he was so repulsed by how he looked. And then he, the, the vet said, here's this ointment. You need to apply this ointment to his face twice a day. And he said it, he, the dog smelled horrible, like the decomposing flesh. And so he took him home. He put him in the garage because he, he didn't, couldn't bring him in the house. He said the dog like slinked over. He said the dog almost knew like he had lost its beauty. He slunk over to the side. And it came time where he had to put on this, this ointment. And he said he put these gloves on. He got this ointment on. He's like, how am I going to do this? He said he was all like squeamish. And he got over there and he like started putting it on. And he said the dog looked at him. He said with eyes, they're almost human. He said, and he said it was almost as if the dog was saying, I know this is miserable for you but it's helping alleviate my pain. He said, he said, I'm not, he said, this may sound funny. He said, but something happened. He said, in that moment between me and that dog, he said, like we were knit together in that moment. He said, from that point on, he said, they were inseparable. He said, the next time he did the ointment, he forgot his gloves. Like he just started doing it barehanded and this dog was knit to him. He said, everywhere he went, this dog was following Sproul out of a room, in a room. He said he would teach at the Ligonier Valley Study Center. The dog was right by his feet. He would fall asleep. He would go hunting. He has this great story of him hunting and the dog helped him. He said he just loved this dog. Magnificent dog. But well, two and a half years later, after the, the snake bites, he started having convulsions and repeatedly convulsions. They took him to the vet, gave him medicine, and it wasn't getting better. And so the, the, the vet thought that it was some... Something from the snake bite is still in his brain, and there's nothing we can do. He thinks the best thing that we can do, recommend, is we, you put him to sleep. And so he said, okay, I'll go home, talk to my wife, tell the kids, 
and, and we'll decide what to do. So he went home and told the kids. I'm sure it was hard. And then he was talking to his wife and said, you know, what, what should we do? And he's supposed to say, well, I don't really want to pay the vet to give a lethal injection. I'll just take him hunting. And while he's focused in on a bird, I'll, I'll aim in my scope and I'll pull the trigger. And then he started thinking about it and he thought, there's no way. If I pull, put the scope on that dog, I cannot pull the trigger. There's no way. I can't do it. And then she said, well, why don't you take him to the vet? And he was thinking, oh, man, if I have to take him to the vet, it's a 10-minute drive. I'm driving down to the vet knowing what's going to happen. And that dog looks at me with those eyes and I'm going to curve off the road. There's no way. I can't do it. And she said, what are we going to do? He said, well, just get some, one of the students to do it. Don't tell me when it's going to do it, when it's going to happen. Just tell one of the students to do it and then tell me after it's done. So three days later, he said he came home and his wife said, Hosey's dead. This other kid had, had taken him to. But then this is where Sproul just makes it so, so powerful. This is what Sproul said. That was my dog. It was not my son. You see, I couldn't take my dog, who was in misery, who was going to die anyway in a car for 15 minutes to be mercifully killed. And he talks about Abraham and Isaac. God asked Abraham to take his only son, Isaac. But then at the end of that message, he says, 2,000 years after Abraham, God took his son, his only son. The son, he loved Jesus, and he took him to a mountain and fastened him to a vertical altar of sacrifice. But this time, ladies and gentlemen, no one yelled stop. God brought down the knife into the heart of his only begotten son. I think that, that's Romans 8.32. I mean, but that story makes you feel the wonder of the gospel. And this is the heart of the gospel, and it's just so amazing that God would do this, would send his son. It's absolutely yeah. amazing. He did not spare his own son, Grant. Kurt? Anything that you have to add? Not to good story. Yeah, it's hard to. But yeah, what do you what do you add? Let me read something here. I might, Miss Elizabeth, I might send this to you and clean it up a little bit for me, and and uh, maybe we can put it on the. Um, I, I was just trying to summarize these seven verses, and we need to come back and, and really finish the uh, the rest of thirty two uh, next week, um, Lord willing, if the Lord gives us uh, another week. Um, so here's where we're at. Starting from 26, the Holy Spirit knows you and perfectly and is committed to sanctify you thoroughly and prays for you continually according to the will of God, the Father who has adopted us into his family. And so now we know, right, in all capital letters, we know, remember Romans 8, 28, we know that God answers every single one of those requests of the Holy Spirit in the affirmative and gloriously synergizes or works all things together for his glory, which is also for our eternal good, which means that he conforms us to the image of his Son, and this includes every event, every circumstance, even those caused by our sin or the sin of others. None of these events or circumstances are accidental or happenstance, but are purposely and magnificently designed by our all-loving, all-knowing, and all-powerful Father, who chose completely by his own design and eternal purpose to set his love on the elect. This, the ultimate long-range plan, started before the beginning of time, in eternity past, and it covers every second of time through eternity future. And this brief window of time, which we now enjoy life, really, bathing in all of his pleasure, is guaranteed to make us more like Jesus. Every second of it is. Um, his beloved Son and our glorious uh, Savior. 
because he is for us. In fact, all of the Trinity is for us. As the Holy Spirit and Jesus continually intercede for us, and God killed his beloved perfect son to prove that all-inspiring love and commitment to each one of his children. This, in turn, guarantees that every hardship, every worry, every stressful circumstance in the life of everyone who loves God and has been called according to his purpose can truly be counted as a blessing sent directly from the one who loves us perfectly and continually and blesses us with his perfect disciplinary action. So I think we just need to be still and know that he is God. Right? Enjoy these fantastic truths. And one more thing, and we'll come back to this next week. The all things, at the end of verse 32, how will he not along with his son graciously give us all things is the all things in Romans 8.28. Right? They're the same. All things work together for good. God will give us all things. And that includes everything we need for life and godliness, which he's given us through his son and uh, and his word. It's um, unimaginable uh, that the the depth and the and the height of where we're at here. Uh, Grant, would you ask that the Lord give us grace to believe this when this week, sometime, maybe in a couple hours, it'll be hard to even imagine that this is true again as uh, um, things come up against us. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. And Father, thank you for this local body, this church that you have brought together by your sovereign hand and for all those that are um, so integral, the members here in this church, Father. Thank you for them and that we can discuss your word openly and freely. And Father, these verses truly are remarkable that you did not spare your own son but gave him up for us all. Father, I do ask, as Mr. Jerry said, that we would have the faith to believe that this week. Father, if we begin to doubt that maybe you were for us, but we may start doubting your character that you're no longer for us. Father, I pray that we would have the faith and understanding to believe these verses, to know that if you gave up your own son, you will um, give us all things and bring us to glory, Father. I pray that we would believe that and that it would radically change um, how we think this week and also how we act from how we think. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.